Hi there, my name is Phil Agnew and you are listening to Nudge, the marketing science podcast. This is a special end of year episode where I go back through the 480 minutes of Nudge that was published over 2021 and I highlight the very best tips, lessons and advice from the podcast over the year. In today's show, you'll hear about how to improve your positioning with April Dunford, how Louis Grenier would differentiate a brand, and why Adam Ferrier adds negativity to his marketing. But first up, I wanted to say a little thank you to everyone who has tuned into Nudge this year. You've downloaded over 100,000 episodes over the past 12 months, and 150 of you have been kind enough to leave five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. 500 of you have signed up for the Nudge newsletter and 200 of you enrolled in the Science of Marketing course. And those numbers are really numbers I could only have dreamed of achieving even just a year back. So really, thank you and cheers for supporting the show. Anyway, to kick off the show, I wanted to share the best bit of marketing advice that I got from none other than Rory Sutherland. Here's Rory. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct to consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. It took me about eight years of working with behavioral science, both in academia and business, uh, to understand a vital distinction between business and academia. And it's this. So I'm incredibly and pathetically grateful to all the academics who have done uh, very important, robust, uh, scientifically validated work in behavioral science to show that the precepts of mainstream economics can't be relied on uh, predictively to understand, map, or explain human behavior. Okay. But there is a difference, which is it suddenly occurred to me a few years ago that in science, to to pursue your career successfully as a scientist, you have to be right. You have to be demonstrably right. 
In business, you just need to know where your competitors are wrong. And one of the reasons, oddly, is that in, in a sense, science is um, a pursuit which tries to increase the amount of certainty in the world, which runs counter to my own temperament and self-interest, which is the reason I value behavioral science is because actually it argues that we should acknowledge that there is much more uncertainty in the world than we like to think. You know, we should be much less confident about economic models. We should be much less confident about market research. Okay. We should be much less confident about using past behavioral data to model the future. Okay. Those are the three things that business and government and policymaking tend to use in seeking to understand human behavior. Okay. It's asking people market research, it's looking at what people do already and projecting forwards. You know, that's essentially, you know, modeling or you know, most of transport investment works that way. And then the third one is basically using um, the precepts of neoliberal economics to assume that people are naive utility maximizers um, uh, who will always buy, uh, you know, the best product at the lowest possible price. Okay. And when you get people to acknowledge that there may be more uncertainty than it, they like to think or that they've conventionally thought. It doesn't guarantee that you'll be successful in and of itself. What it does do is it massively increases the possible creative solution space, right? Once you admit psychological solutions to the armory of, uh, of possible problem-solving tools, the scope for creative imagination and imaginative testing goes up enormously. And the greatest value, I think, of behavioral science ultimately is not that it provides you with answers. It's that it encourages you to test much more widely than conventional logic would suggest. Rory makes heaps of good points here, but one that stood out was to be wary of market research. This was something that I hadn't really considered before speaking to Rory. My marketing education never told me that market research could be bad. But forecasting and market research, although useful, are hardly surefire measures to predict the future. A great example of this comes from 1894, when the Times newspaper made an infamous forecast. At the time, London had 80,000 horses transporting people and goods across the capital. The Times noted that each horse produced 15 to 30 pounds of dung a day, plus one quart of urine. All of it was filling up the street, so the Times predicted, and this is a quote, that in 50 years, every street in London will be buried under nine feet of manure. Now, this was an accurate, realistic prediction based on the available data at the time. But of course, it was wildly inaccurate because it didn't take into account that cars would be invented. That's the danger of relying on forecasts and market research. They can be a great indicator, but they shouldn't be taken as gospel. Let's move on to the second marketing tip. This is from positioning expert April Dunford. Here, April explains how to effectively position your product. Sure. Well, you know, positioning it is a really misunderstood concept. And 
when you think about it, that's kind of surprising because it's not new. It's been around since the 80s. And you would think that we would know what it is. But my experience is if I get a room of senior product people or senior marketing people together and I say define positioning, I get a dozen different answers. And I think part of the confusion confusion comes from the fact that positioning is made up of a bunch of component piece parts. And we can talk a bit about that. But when I talk about positioning, I generally start by talking about what positioning is not. And people are often surprised. So I'll say, yeah, positioning, you know what, it's not the same thing as messaging. It's not the same thing as your tagline. It's not the same thing as your vision. It's not the same thing as your why as a company. (laughs) And my personal pet peeve is brand positioning. I get that one the most. They'll say, yeah, yeah, positioning, brand positioning. And I'll be like, hmm. You know, there's branding and there's positioning. And those two things are actually really, really separate. I think that people confuse positioning with things that you do with positioning immediately once you have it <laughs> or outputs of positioning, but you kind of got to get the positioning first to do any of those things. Like how do I do branding if I don't know who the branding is for and what value you're trying to embody? My definition of positioning is, um, it kind of goes like this. So positioning defines how your offering is uniquely qualified to deliver some kind of value that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Now, I wish I had a more succinct way of defining it (laughs) because that's a bit of a mouthful, but I'm trying to capture five things in that definition. This is positioning will define who is your competitive alternative is. So who do you compete with? It defines how you're different from those competitors in terms of your capabilities. It defines what your differentiated value is. It defines who exactly is this value important to? So what's your ideal customer profile or who are you targeting? And then the last thing is your market category or you know what market is it that you intend to win? Positioning defines those five things. We can't do anything in marketing and sales until we have a crisp definition of those five things. That's what positioning is. Since listening to April's definition, I've had a much better grasp of what good positioning looks like. And I've started to spot examples of companies who take April's advice to heart and really nail their own positioning. Take Loom, for example. Now, Loom are a browser-based video and screen recording software. They are in the video recording industry, so they could talk about all the things video recording tools usually talk about and all the things that video recording tools have. For example, they could write a message like, best in class, video quality and 15 hours worth of storage. That would be the conventional way of talking about that industry or products in that industry. But they don't use messaging like this. See, they understand that positioning is about going after a specific market that can significantly benefit from your offering. Their specific market is busy business professionals who want to explain something to someone but don't have the time, so instead do a quick screen recording or video recording. So, to capture this market, Loom's messaging is faster than typing an email or meeting live. Now, this is the same product as other video recording tools, but it has vastly different positioning and it's enabled them to stand out to their target audience. And today, over 14 million busy professionals pick Loom, more than any other video and screen recording tool. And here's another example from the company Patch. Now, Patch sell houseplants. 
They've positioned themselves uniquely by targeting people who love plants but who struggle to keep them alive. So rather than saying houseplants for every room, they say almost unkillable houseplants and houseplants made easy. It's a subtle change to their messaging and positioning that makes Patch much more appealing to their target audience. Now, of course, we can't mention positioning without talking about differentiation. Both Loom and Patch are successful not only because of their positioning, but because of that subtle differentiation as well. Which leads nicely onto my next tip. This is from differentiation expert Louis Grenier. Here's Louis explaining his approach to differentiation and him walking through something he calls radical differentiation. Yeah, it's 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 just a way to be the to be different and compelling for a specific group of people. So it's basically the statement: we are the only company that does that for that specific group of people. That's what it is. And so you can claim the fact that you are the only one in the world doing that. The mistake that people make when they go through differentiation is they think we need to be the only one. But no, it's not about being the only one. It's about being the only one for a group of people that does this specific thing. So for everyone hates marketers, the statement will be the only marketing podcast for people uh, sick of marketing bullshit who want to learn, you know, actionable strategy to grow. You know, I'm the only one who can claim that. And through that, then you take some risk by going all in, in for this minimum viable market that is that can sustain you for a long time. This minimum doesn't mean it's too small. It means it's the right size. And those group, this group of people is congruent, meaning they have something in common and it's not demographic. It's mostly a psychographic trait. Like they want to do something. They want to reach a goal. They want to solve a pain, but it's very acute. They really are dying for a solution like yours. So you become the de facto only solution for them only. And not only do you say that, you also re-engineer or engineer your solution to match that. And that's the second thing that I have a big issue with when it comes to branding and differentiation and positioning is that most experts consider the product that you're selling as something that is set in stone you can't change. And I hate that with a big passion because marketing has lost its seat at the leadership table for this type of thinking because people think promotion equal marketing, marketing equal promotion and ad. Marketing in its very core, if you think of the four Ps, price, product, place, promotion, product is part of it. We should, as marketers, we should be able to influence the product we are selling through our deep, deep understanding of our our minimum viable market. And differentiation starts with that. So when I teach differentiation, when I do it myself uh, with clients and whatnot, the main thing is to be able to say, we have obsessed over a specific group of people. We know their needs very well. Now let's re-engineer the product so that it really matches everything that they want. Let's remove the fluff, focus on that, and and become the only. But putting a lipstick on a pig with a narrative, like you know, like this fucking narrative design. Oh, let's take a shitty product and now let's put a narrative spin on it and tell a story. And now boom, you have differentiation. That's horse shit. So you can't have differentiation and specifically not radical differentiation with an average product you're going to have to make changes to the product or services you sell and that's the key that to me is missing in most literature louis definition of radical differentiation reminded me of a brilliant example of differentiation from dave trott's book power of ignorance el paso zoo in texas had a problem the zoo needed to attract more visitors 
See, there were bigger and better zoos elsewhere in Texas, and they were capturing all of the market share, so El Paso needed a way to stand out. Valentine's Day was coming up, and the marketing team was considering running a campaign. See, most zoos would do a campaign around adopting a pair of lovebirds or something similar, but El Paso wanted to be radically different. They wanted to stand out. So, They did the exact opposite. They didn't target people who were benefiting from Valentine's Day. No, they targeted people who had had their heart broken. On their Facebook page, they advertised that they would let followers name a cockroach after their ex. Not only that, on Valentine's Day, they would stream a live video of the zoo feeding the cockroach with your ex's name to a hungry meerkat. They called the event Quit Bugging Me. Within days, 1,500 people had donated to name a cockroach. People as far as Germany and Australia were organising parties to watch their ex get eaten. And Quit Bugging Me was covered by TV, newspapers and online media. It drew unprecedented coverage for the zoo, a record-breaking month for donations and thousands of new visitors. And it cost them nothing. They simply embraced radical differentiation, tailoring their offering for a unique audience and tweaking their product to double down on that differentiation. Now, my next unforgettable bit of marketing advice that I heard this year comes from Brie Williams. Here's Brie talking about choice paralysis and the overwhelm barrier. The overwhelm barrier is one that oftentimes we do overlook as marketers or business people because We think the option is clear, you know, ours is the best and what on earth can they be concerned about? There's that problem. There's also the almost the inverse of that problem, which is people ask us for more information. And so we give them more information, thinking that will push them towards a decision and it actually takes them further away from that. I think it's known as decision quicksand. So people will say, oh, yes, if you just send me some more information, I'll definitely make that decision. So you do. And guess what? It doesn't change their behaviour. What we're really doing is clouding their decision making. And oftentimes I see this in website design. I've, I've worked a bit in website design and, you know, we are, are at a, in a rush to be generous in the information that we are providing our customer and, in fact, that's doing the reverse of what we want it to do. Sometimes less is more. Taking something away from your offering and from your marketing and from your product is almost always better than adding something. Nothing highlights this more than the McDonald's origin story. When McDonald's first started out, they did what every hamburger joint did and offered a full menu of mains, sides and drinks. They had 27 items on their menu, including stuff like barbecue pork, chilli with beans, fried chicken and more. Now this made sense because conventional wisdom suggests that the more choice you offer, the more your customers will buy. But as Bree says, often less is more. McDonald's only started to grow once they realised that 87% of their income came from just three items, hamburgers, fries and drinks. So they reduced their menu and concentrated on just making those three items, which meant that they could make them better, tastier and faster than anyone else. Almost overnight, McDonald's sales doubled 
and then the next year they doubled again. They soon became the biggest restaurant in their state, and then the biggest restaurant in the US, and eventually the biggest restaurant in the world. But not by adding more stuff, simply by taking stuff away. Hey folks, quick break in the show here just to tell you a little bit about today's show sponsor, Wisdom. Wisdom is an app where you can go and listen to live conversations on topics that matter. It's a pretty cool app. You just download it, set up your username, and you can start listening to all sorts of interesting topics straight away. Anyway, I'm going to host a conversation on Wisdom tomorrow, so that's the 4th of January at 5pm GMT. I'll be chatting about how I started Nudge, some of the tips I've learned from running the show, and just have an informal discussion um, with some of you listeners. All you need to do is go and download Wisdom, create an account, just takes 30 seconds, and then follow me. My username is Phil, Phil with two L's, so P-H-I-L-L. I've left a link to follow me in the show notes, so you can just click there. So hopefully a lot of you can join me on Wisdom tomorrow, 4th of January at 5pm GMT. We'll see you there. Anyway, back to the show. Anyway, on to my penultimate bit of marketing advice, and this is from consumer psychologist Adam Ferrier. He taught me about the negativity bias. Here's Adam. Marketing is obsessed with creating pleasurable experiences, and what we know in other areas of popular culture, i.e. entertainment and politics, is that creating negative experiences and talking about negative themes can, can often get, A, much more attention. So if you're a publisher, if it bleeds, it leads. If you're a politician and you want to, you're in opposition, you're attacking, you, you know, trying to take down your um, opponent. And it, it's kind of, a, I guess, at, at a fundamental level due to something which I'm sure your listeners will be well aware of, which is the negativity bias, uh, which is when, uh, when we experience negative stimuli, we pay much more attention to that negative stimuli and we code it more deeply. And so in the world of publishing, in the world of entertainment, we kind of know this. Yet in the world of marketing, we kind of ignore this because we're, you know, we've historically been really interested in presenting this glib, semi-perfect, uh, aspirational view of people's lives and trying to play that to people. Whereas, and I think more and more now, people are calling bullshit on that and saying, you know, that, that, that's just crap. And if you can do something negative or if you can be a bit, a bit dark uh, or if you can present something imperfect, then it's much more likely to get attention and be potentially be coded more deeply. I, I came across this, uh, you know, about five or six years ago. There was a behavioural economist called Bubba Shiv who was um, studying imperfection and, and blemishing in marketing and, and did, you know, I think, it was, I think it was almost like nine years ago now, but did a kind of uh, a study where he purposely blemished various products. And what he found was people's preference for those products went up when there was a blemish or some kind of imperfection on those products that was peripheral to the, to the actual reason why they were buying it. So the packaging might have been slightly dented or there might have been a bad parking available at a particular restaurant or something. But if they're blemished in some way or there's some kind of negativity, then it, then for certain reasons you start to pay attention, you start to look into it, and then you might start to um, start to be interested in that and then start to justify your, your like for that particular brand and, um, and rationalise why that particular brand is good despite the negativity and therefore uh, hoodwinking yourself into liking it more. 
Now, I won't go into the negativity bias today because I recently talked about it at length on episode 70 of Nudge just a few weeks back. So head back and listen to that episode if you haven't and you want to learn a little bit more about the negativity bias. But to round up this list and this episode and to finish off the year, I'll share one more bit of marketing wisdom from Rory Sutherland. Here's Rory explaining what to do if you're starting a business. There's a great guy, I can't remember his name, but he's some sort of tech um, guru, sort of startup king, you know, those people. Okay. And he his model for how you start a business works like this, right? You take a business sector, you make a list of all the assumptions that pervade that sector, you know, that X is important, that Y is important, that consumers really care about Z, okay? And you will find these generalized assumptions pervading through the whole sector. Then you find out which of those many assumptions either isn't true to begin with or won't be true in two years' time. And now, when you've discovered what everybody else is wrong about, you've got a business opportunity. You know, And that, that's why I think most of the kind of billion-dollar businesses we see, the startups, are actually logically nonsensical. Right? There was nothing in marketing information to tell you, if you were Dyson, that there was even a tiny market for a 700-euro vacuum cleaner. Right? You could have looked at the market. You could have looked at where, where the top end, the sweet spot, the low end of the market lay. You could go and do market research and say, would you pay 800 quid for a vacuum cleaner? In which case, you would have got the response, piss off. Right? Okay. You know, I, I, even if James Dyson had come to me, I would have told him he was insane because a vacuum cleaner is a grudge purchase you only buy one when your old vacuum cleaner breaks and anyone who could spend 800 euros on a vacuum cleaner probably employs a cleaning person anyway so they don't even hoover their own house okay and yet it's when you discover something that everybody else assumed that ain't so that's when you've got the potential for real innovation red bull you know the assumption that a soft drink has to taste particularly pleasant <laughs> you know all of these things so i occasionally go to academics and say have you got any findings that kind of don't replicate you know or or have you got a theory that you've always believed that you can't prove you know have you got any sort of really sh- you know shit experiments that you know now the reason for that is that um uh, I don't. I don't need to be right in order to have a business or business advantage. I don't need to be right universally all the time. That's physics, right? That's not business. Okay. I just need to find something that my competitors are frequently and significantly wrong about. I think that's some epic advice to remember. In marketing and business, you don't have to be right every time. You just have to be less wrong than your competitors. So test out some wacky campaigns. Try something like the Quit Bugging Me campaign from El Paso Zoo. Or take a leaf out of McDonald's book and drastically reduce the number of options for your customers. Because counterintuitive thinking often leads to breakthrough ideas. All right, folks, I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Nudge. And I hope you've enjoyed all the shows that I published this year. As many of you know, Nudge is just a solo project. It's only me working on the show in my spare time. So if you have appreciated listening to the show over the year, do let me know by by leaving the show a review wherever you listen to podcasts or by reaching out directly to me and letting me know. Hopefully you found these tips useful. 
If you did, then the very best thing you can do now is to sign up to the Nudge newsletter. On the Nudge newsletter, I send out concise examples of companies applying behavior science to their work. These are examples that are fascinating, they're insightful, and you'll want to steal them. If you sign up, you'll learn about how Snickers doubled their sales with anchoring, how the Helsinki Tourism Board convinced thousands of tourists to visit with a little bit of the negativity bias, and many, many more tips that I send out every two weeks. The link to sign up is in the show notes, or you can head to nudgepodcast.com and hit newsletter in the menu and you can sign up there. I'll be back, of course, next year with lots more nudge for you. I've got an interview with Lisa Feldman Barrett on debunking myths about the brain. That's a cracking interview. I chat with the authors of Poles Apart, and they tell me the science behind convincing people. And I chat with Vanessa Bond on influencing others. These are all cracking episodes coming up, so make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss them. All right, that's all for today. Cheers for listening to Nudge.